Stay tuned for The Lynn Show. Today, I am finally airing the second half of my interview with the incredible Frank Galati. I did the first half of this interview when Frank was directing 1776 and was unable to complete it because they whisked him away for rehearsal. If you heard the first half of that interview, you hear me saying I'd really like to do it again and Frank saying that we could and we finally have. It only took six years. And so now um, this interview has been triggered by Frank's creation of a brand new musical, uh, which he will talk about in this interview. But I begin by saying, could you catch us up from the place where you left off? And he does. So as in the first interview, as in any time that you are fortunate enough to have an opportunity to listen to Frank, here is this fascinating, interesting, deeply serious, philosophical man talking about his life, about his work, about the theater, about literature, about all those things that matter to him and should matter to the rest of us. So hang on, here come the show. Hearing from an inner voice Finding choice where there's no choice With gentle prodding from the voice Oh, you really can Deeper, deeper down
Welcome to The Lynn Show. The Lynn Show is about being the person you really are, not the person you think you have to be, not the person other people are, not the person someone told you you had to be, or maybe even told you you were, not even the person you may currently think you are, but the person you really are. Unfortunately, Too many people have experiences in their childhoods which discourage them from being the whole person that they are. And because children are so flexible, they can pretend not to be some of those things which brought some consequence which was unpleasant. And they can get so good at the pretense that many come into adulthood having forgotten something significant, maybe many significant things, maybe the most significant thing about themselves. In my shows, I interview people who make their living or their life with an art because when you listen to them, you can hear what it sounds like to be the person you really are. And in Frank Galati, you have someone who is completely and totally the person he really is. Although he thought he only wanted to be a teacher, and if you listen to the first interview, you heard that he did in fact teach for 42 years, he didn't realize the significance, the pull, the importance that the theater would have on his life and the many, many ways in which the theater defined his life. So in this interview, you can hear a continuation of this extraordinary story. And here now is the second half of my interview with the glorious Frank Galati. Oh, I'm here with Frank Galati again. Hi. Hi. <laughs> and I listened to our earlier interview, uh-huh. and it ends with you talking about how you found and created after the quake. Right, yes. So I'd like to talk about Knoxville. Sure. But before we do, mm-hmm. um, I wonder if you could just catch us up between after the quake and today. Really, what happened in your life? How you wound up going from there to here? Well, uh, maybe one interesting follow-up to the after the quake um, part of my work was that um, there had been subsequent earthquakes in Japan since the 1995 disaster where Tens of thousands of people were killed. But uh, the, the more recent one, um, although it wasn't as devastating, was hugely traumatic. And um, because I did the work at Steppenwolf in Chicago first, they, as someone in Japan, a teacher, high school teacher, through some agency, I'm not sure, uh, got in touch with Steppenwolf and wanted to know more about the adaptation of After the Quake because they knew the stories in Japanese and when they learned that there was a performance text, they wondered if it wouldn't be good for their students Yes. Not only to study the stories and read them, 
but to perform in them mm -hmm. and to have them performed. So uh, they they translated the play. <laughs> they they translated it back back into Japanese. <laughs> and actually, this has happened uh, twice with me and Murakami. Uh, in answer to your question, the uh, next project involving this great Japanese writer. Uh, is Kafka on the Shore, which was a huge novel of his that came out, um, I don't know, maybe 10 years after, after the quake. But anyway, it's a really interesting book. Um, of course, it has all of the surreal um, and fantastical qualities that other stories by Murakami have, like Super Frog Saves Tokyo, which is part of After the Quake, mm -hmm. involves a huge worm that lives under Tokyo and slumbers. And when the worm wakes up and begins to move, that's what causes the, quake. the earthquakes. So in Kafka on the Shore, what he's done is he's taken the Oedipus story and applied it to the adventures of a young kid, a teenage boy in Tokyo who loses his father and in a quest to find him, encounters an older woman who's a librarian and he has an affair with her and at the same time he encounters a <laughs> this is going to sound really weird out of context he meets Johnny Walker of Johnny Walker Red <laughs> and Johnny Walker Black, Black. Label he also meets Colonel Sanders. <laughs> Both of these iconic ad characters, um, you know, spokespersons for product. And for product, coincidentally, rather harmful in yeah. some way. Yes, right. Kentucky Fried Chicken and Whiskey. <laughs> right. Uh, so he so Murakami is kind of uh, winking and laughing at the appropriation of Western icons and product uh, in Japan. Anyway, the Johnny Walker character turns out to be like his father, and the woman who's the librarian his mother. Uh, he also is accompanied on the way by his double. Uh, he calls him Crow. And the two of them uh, have as complicated a relationship. They actually speak to each other. They see each other uh, as if he was... Uh, not his alter ego, but another person. It was absolutely fascinating. 
So I did an adaptation, and uh, we produced it at Steppenwolf. Had a wonderful cast. It was a very uh, surreal and lots of uh, wonderful magical elements to it. And they sent the script to Murakami for his approval, and as he did with After the Quake, he approved and um, commended the translation. And so it's been done. So both After the Quake and Kafka on the Shore have had productions, well, I hesitate to say around the world, but it has been translated back into Japanese, into German, and I think Italian. It's very strange to me. The same thing happened with The Grapes of Wrath. It was translated and performed Well, one of the things about the Japanese stuff that's so interesting to me is with Kafka, you have a a Greek piece taken by a Japanese, taken by an American, taken back, it's yeah. it's this thing about universality yeah. that yes absolutely I'm amazing it is it is amazing and it i guess reinforces maybe a kind of like jung thing where collective there's unconscious. a collective unconscious we all draw from narratives in fact it's weird because i've done so many adaptations that along the way I didn't realize I was following a kind of pattern. Ah. But they uh, almost always involve family and very often the turbulent relationships between sons and fathers Ah. and sons and mothers. Ah. Well, this is Another thing I did since after the quake, um, I did once an adaptation of Oedipus. <laughs> Go to the source. <laughs> Go to the source. Actually, uh, Libby Apple, who was then the artistic director at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, called me one day and said, how would you like to do a Greek tragedy out here for us? Like, what about Oedipus? And I said, oh, Libby, I'm not the person to do. You know, I'm not even thinking how many of the things that I've done resonate with that story. You know, I I want to stop you because because I just listened to our original interview. And one of the things that comes up over and over again in that is the serendipity, the happenstance, the, yeah. the stuff that you do that you didn't intend to do, yeah. that you're not conscious even of, right? That's right. It's a, it's, so this is more of that theme. That's right. It is. It really is. Uh, so I declined the project, and she said, well, why don't you think about it over the summer, reread it, because, you know, we're always here and we'd love to have you work here. So I went, I go up to Michigan in the summer and small library there. I had no hope that they would have a copy of Of Oedipus Rex, but they did. So I read it again, having not looked at it since 
college. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for some reason, it really moved me. I I mean, I was really moved, not just uh, horrified or thrilled or, you know... um, No, emotionally impacted. Yeah, it was... There was uh, a kind of... For the first time for me maybe because I was totally an adult, uh, sympathy for Oedipus. I felt, oh, how really tragic that he's fallen into this trap unwittingly. Yes, through no fault of his own. No fault of his own. Yes. He he doesn't know that he's killed his father, and he doesn't know that he slept with his mother. And the entire narrative is a quest for the truth. And when he finds out the truth, it's absolutely annihilating to him. So it's, you know, it's a narrative. It's kind of bare bones. But you can apply that to so many human tangles and predicaments that we get in that uh, make us suffer and make us make us learn. It occurs to me that we like to say you could have known, you should have known, why did you do this, that kind of thing, when in actual fact this sort of thing happens more often than we would like to think of it. Yes. It's the the absence of control that life really is. You're absolutely right and I think audiences, whether they're really aware of it or not, often come to the theater to have taboos and prohibitions reaffirmed. That's why we tell this story over. Because we must inform our progenitors that the impulse to kill the father is a natural one, perhaps, but it is forbidden. Yes. Yes. And vice versa with the mother. So uh, what I did was, uh, in answer to Libby's request, I called her back and I said, Lib, what if we didn't do just Oedipus, but what if I went back to Freud and used his essay which is the seminal document that identifies, and the title of the essay is called The Oedipus Complex. Complex. So we called our show The Oedipus Complex. And it began with Freud lecturing in a turn-of-the-century surgical theater to all of his graduate students and fellow medical personnel, psychologists that in those early days of uh, Freud's, you know, uh, breakthrough uh, lessons. Uh, And I was sort of inspired because there's a Thomas Eakins painting, uh, which is in the Baltimore School of Medicine library. It's a huge painting, and I'm sure you've seen reproductions of it. It's never shown except in photographs. Um, 
it's a surgical theater, and all of the students in their <laughs> black ties and white stiff collars, they're all looking down at the operation, and this old surgeon is speaking to them. There's a corpse or a, a patient on a gurney and a couple of nurses, and he has already made an incision, and he's showing in his gesture, the students, what the pathology is. Tremendously moving painting. So I thought, oh, he, the surgeon is Freud. The students in the surgical theater are the chorus. And the patient is Oedipus. Oedipus. <laughs> Voila. <laughs> so I did it there, and then... Uh, a year later at the Goodman Theater in Chicago. And that was a great experience for me because I was able to continue working on it and I changed it a lot between the first incarnation and the second. But anyway, that, that all grew out of, um, in a certain strange way, uh, the, the Oedipus paradigm in Kafka on the Shore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a, a through line. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, so when you did this, were you still working at Northwestern? Yes. You, you told me in the early interview that you taught for 42 years. Yeah. So why did you stop? Well, I loved teaching. Well, that's very clear. It was my <laughs> life. I... I loved it. I learned every day and more than I could ever have expected. Uh, my students were brilliant, um, you know, just creative. And, you know, as you get older and older and the years pass, to be always in contact with youth to feel the atmosphere and the weather around young people, what they're, you know, the white noise, the static electricity, the, the, the sound, the music, the, uh, the catastrophic historical events against the, I mean, I started teaching in the 60s uh -huh. at the University of South Florida in 1966. Oh my goodness. So, I mean, uh, that was a few years after Kennedy's assassination. By 68, Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy, watching and being on the sidelines and sometimes being in the middle of those protests, those debates, the anguish of the war in Vietnam. So I was able to kind of take the pulse of young people who were struggling with, really with this history, yeah. uh, and to bring a little bit of um, awareness to them of story and storytelling, 
why it's important, what, why we tell stories, why we are compelled to imitate, to replicate, to duplicate the world that we live in, constantly making an image of an image of an image, but to contribute a little bit in the lives of young people of the uh, wisdom and compassion and perspective and perspective that literature provides. Uh -huh. uh, it was always for me a source of comfort and inspiration and instruction and to be able to say to a young person, hey, take a look at this. <laughs> you know, see what you think of this? What do you think of this? You know, and that was always my favorite thing, to find out from them what they were thinking. And really and truly, I guess it's because in my own experience as a student, it wasn't until I had a professor who later became my dissertation advisor, but who asked me really what I thought. <laughs> what do you think? Wow, when someone asks that, that's the unlocking of a door. Yes. And out comes speech, out comes thought. You don't know what you think <laughs> until somebody has asked you, right. and then and then you you give voice to it, something you probably would never have done yes. if you hadn't been asked. So anyway, it was my great joy. But after so many years of real um, solid nourishing work, I could tell that I was on the threshold at the end of my teaching career of a whole new era, a whole new cosmology, and it involved the computer. At the time that I left Northwestern, all faculty members were being given laptop computers for their office. This was, you know, an unheard of. I mean, no one ever expected somebody was going to give you a computer. And then the imperative became more and more complicated, mm -hmm. communicating through the computer yeah. with your students. Uh, accepting all written assignments yes. on a computer, uh, eschewing and, and in some ways uh, making fun of longhand Aye. notations and writing papers with... The way my department was organized, it was a Department of Performance Studies but the purpose, the pedagogy, was to study literature through performance. Performance was the means of gaining access to the interior life 
and the voice of a text. So uh, we did not only performances where students would have to do two or three or four pages of prose, but because my department, uh, very small, four, six faculty members, the rigor of scholarship was paramount. So while we learned performance techniques, we also had to learn um, criticism and theory, uh, prosody in the case of studying poetry. I don't know what prosody is. Prosody is the science or art of patterning in poetry. So A, A, B, B, C, C, or A, B, C. Like song lyric. Yeah, exactly. How many stresses per line? How many unstressed syllables? Is there alliteration assonance, uh, which is vowel sounds that are similar, or consonants, which is consonant sounds? that are similar. So we knew we learned these these sort of technical aspects of the literary project. And to that end, in terms of literary analysis, we would have students write papers. So if you took Dr. Bacon's Shakespeare class, he was the chair of our department, he was my boss. But if you took his class in Shakespeare, you were going to be in that classroom from September until June. You were going to read every single play of Shakespeare's and some of the sonnets, and you're going to read about 10 or 12 books of criticism of Shakespeare, analyzing Shakespeare's plays you were going to perform solo all the characters in a given scene chosen by you from one of the plays on the syllabus in a given month. So you might be performing Romeo and Juliet Uh, one week, and um, three weeks later or four weeks later, King Lear and Cordelia. And in addition to all of that, you had to write papers. I taught fiction and poetry. But for me, those papers were, they were very hard for me. Uh, They were hard for me when I was a student, and they were hard for me when I was a teacher. They took a lot of attention and concentration, and I would have to plow through lots of mistakes. Grammar, syntax, uh, diction, uh, spelling. Um, I typically had a class of 20, 21 students. So they would write four papers during the course of a term. It's almost 100 papers. Yeah. And it would take me an hour, average an hour, Mm -hmm. 
I'm amazed you could do anything else. To do, well, it was very hard yeah. to do anything else. Yeah. And when I started teaching at the University of South Florida, it was, oh my God, that you could hardly breathe. When I first started, I was teaching five classes a quarter. And directing performances in the evening. You know, productions and readings and so on. But anyway, I'm mentioning this paper writing because when I got to the end of my teaching career, those habits and those disciplines were beginning to fall apart. Students were indifferent. Their writing became an annoyance, I found. Because they were... Impatient to get on with it. I was once accosted in the parking lot at Northwestern by a student who said, How dare you, Galati, give me a D. I have never received a D in any course I've ever taken in my life. I was an advanced placement uh, English major in high school. And I'm, um, I said, did you read my notes? Do you have anything to say about the dialogue we've had just in my handwritten notes? Sometimes papers filled with notes. No, I didn't read your notes, you know, like that. Now, it's really wrong to generalize based on that. But that was the most vivid example of a kind of shift. Yeah. I just want to ask, are you saying that technology has had an impact on the way the generation that came up in that technology feels about work? That, uh, that, it, that the speed of it or the ease of it has communicated to the, to the, to the way they feel about what they do? Yeah. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah, it is. And it sure is easier, uh, spell check. Right. The nuances of what the computer can do to help you as a writer, yep. the instant access to information, some of it, of course, dubious, but much of it very, uh, you know, if you want to know the date of Edgar Allan Poe's death, you go online and find out right away. You're in the middle of the paper. You put the paper on hold. Yeah, right. You look up on Google. That's right. And you find out when he died, and then you put it in your paper. Yeah, you you copy it from Google and then you paste it into your oh, paper. Yes. People do. Yes, they do. Right. Yes, right. yes, right. yes, they do. But I mean, that's in having that access is really great. But yeah, the think. shortcuts are deceptive. Yeah, there are all kinds of, I think, untold, un, un yet fully realized consequences yes. for the immersion in this. Well, for the gift. Because yes, it for is, the gift. Right. A high price to pay. Absolutely, but as 
I think you're saying we're not paying it consciously. You know, no, I mean, like that kid, he did not understand, right? That's right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. In a way, it's an Oedipus thing, isn't it? I mean, it's it's tragic because he absolutely did not understand what he hadn't done. Right. Um, yeah. And he paid for it without yeah. realizing that he had done it. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, right. Right. Um, okay, so I think you're saying that what used to be complete joy for you became less so and maybe even problematic. That's true. And uh, I knew that if I was going to stay on, be, I mean, I have a friend who's on the faculty at Northwestern. He was there when I was an undergraduate. He's 81 years old. He still teaches full time. Um, so I could have, I mean, I was 65 or however old I was. And, uh, you know, I could have gone on, but, um, I, I knew that I was going to have to catch up, or... Well, no, it's even worse than catch up. You were going to have to alter. Right. Well, yes. You know. Yes. I, I was feeling like, oh, I'm so behind already, mm -hmm. you know, I might as well throw my hat in the ring, or take it out of, out the, of the ring. ring. <laughs> right, 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 right. But actually, I also had sneaky ideas that I could keep working as a writer and a director and I found that that was uh, very true so um, while I wasn't in the classroom uh, I wasn't home napping <laughs> no. <laughs> as if that could ever have been an option oh my god <laughs> are you saying are, are you you're not you can't possibly be saying and I was surprised <laughs> to discover that I had this option didn't you know I kind of didn't oh again again you go from <laughs> one thing to another that you don't really and yes anticipate, it's right it's glorious it's so glorious no wonder <laughs> you're interested in that mystical <laughs> stuff because your life is pretty mystical in that way well, to a certain extent, yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you do the work, but the but the the journey seems to have a life of its own. It's true. I mean, uh, here I am now. How old I am doesn't matter. I'm seventy-five. I don't feel like it at all. And twenty years ago. I met Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty, and we did Ragtime together. Mm -hmm. uh, it was an absolutely profound and wondrous time of my life. And for all of us involved in that project, uh, it remains, you know, enormously important uh, to all of us. And here I am now, 20 years later, reunited with them, working again on a musical. I mean, I, <laughs> I never w would have thought for a second. I certainly didn't plan it. 
Well, you haven't planned anything. I mean, <laughs> I like, know, that's the I point, haven't. isn't it? Right? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> that's right. It's glorious. It's so glorious. So, okay, having made this lovely segue, why don't you talk about Knoxville? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, that's the title of the show that uh, Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty and I are working on. And you know, I know, that it's an adaptation of two works, um, based one based on the other. The, the primary source is James Agee's novel, A Death in the Family, which was published posthumously. He was very young. He was in his late 40s. He had a heart attack in a taxi cab in New York City. And in his study were the chapters that had never been put together, never been finally edited. You know, there was a bunch of stuff that he intended to be the novel that he was going to call A Death in the Family. So after his death, the editors of his publisher, publishing house got together and uh, figured out how to uh, collate the materials. There are flashbacks and uh, jumps in time. So they did a beautiful job of taking the reader through a narrative that has a kind of breathing rhythm back and forth in time and yet advances. So it, and, and it is, for those who may not know um, James A.G., uh, this is American prose at its absolute um, most beautiful. Uh, other American writers that come to mind, I mean, really, only like Faulkner. Wow. Um, there's great beauty in this simplicity and um, plainness of Hemingway. Um, there's great poetry in the um, colloquial characters in Tennessee Williams plays. Uh, but really, there are few other novelists uh, in the American pantheon that uh, uh, come close to James Agee. He was the, he was well known when he died, but not for uh, writing a novel. He, uh, he was the principal film critic at Time Magazine. Mm -hmm. So he has quite a body of essays on film. He also wrote screenplays, and the most famous of them was The African Queen. Oh. Humphrey Bogart and Katharine Hepburn. That was an original screenplay. The story, the novel, begins we're talking now about Knoxville, Tennessee, in the years that I lived there, 
so successfully disguised to myself as a child. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so the child is the author. Uh-huh. Remembering when he was six years old, and of course this is totally autobiographical. Obviously the names are changed, the details are changed, but basically he's excavating his own family history, his immediate family history. And he is recalling and bringing to life the weekend when his parents received a call in the middle of the night from his father's brother, who is a bit of a drunk, telling them that their father, the grandfather, is dying. And it's probably very close to the end. And would Jay, the father, uh, come right away? So um, after uh, you kind of get to know the relationship between husband and wife and the little boy Rufus is his name, he's six years old, Uh, the father takes off and the mother, we learn, um, is a devout Catholic, a woman of faith, but shaken a bit because her husband, Jay, who's now out on this mission, uh, is not a believer. And this is a source of great anguish to her. And I only say it because it all impacts on the little boy. And really, it's a kind of coming of age novel. Um, A death in the family, you you assume when you read the novel is the grandfather. But that turns out not to be the case. Oh dear. So in the middle of the night driving back, the the grandfather does not die. He's (laughs) fine. The father is killed in an automobile accident. And this is exactly what happened to James A. G. So the death of his father was the principal primal tragedy in his life. And um, what follows in this weekend of grieving is the family coming together, wrestling with old demons, even having inappropriate comic episodes, laughing uncontrollably. The way people, it's it's right. a remarkable uh, and very accurate uh, rendering of the, the trauma in a family of a loss like that. Uh, it follows little Rufus all the way through to seeing his father's corpse at the funeral home and then not being allowed to go to the cemetery, which was very vexing to the boy. But his uncle Andrew, 
who is a very sympathetic uh, figure. Uh, he's an artist, a painter, a portrait painter. Um, says to Rufus, let's go for a little walk. I wanna, I wanna tell you something. And he describes for Rufus what the scene was at the cemetery. Uh, this is all by way of superficial skeleton of plot. Right. That's really all that happens, except this tremendous internal uh, turbulence and conflict and um, anguish. But it's also very, very funny. Oh, good. <laughs> yes. Yes. And uh, Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty, when I approached them with the story, very timidly thinking, you know, I was even embarrassed after so many years to, out of the blue, get back to them and say, you know, will you look at this? Because I had done the adaptation, but I knew that it wasn't it wasn't enough. It it, it was short, and it was um, thin. The kind of real penetrating uh, energy that the novel has, I couldn't find in the just the dialogue mm -hmm. uh, but Lynn and Stephen immediately saw the potential and said yes we'd like to let's think about this we'll we'll try out a couple of ideas and so we just stumbled into this with each other they they wrote a couple of songs the first one called Knoxville. I mean, I can, I can still remember the first time I heard it on my computer. Mm -hmm. They sent it to me in an e email. Uh, Stephen at the piano, you can't hear. <laughs> you know, the lyrics are all screwed up. But still, uh, so beautiful. So simple, so um, deeply felt. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I don't know, you know, weeks followed weeks, and we were sort of idle over the summer. They were very busy. They have tons of shows. They have Anastasia, which has been on Broadway for a year and a half now, is about to close. They have uh, Once on This Island, which won the Tony Award for Best Revival of a Musical. Um, they have a new show called Marie, which is about the Degas statue of the little ballerina. Mm -hmm. um, they, Susical, we worked on together. Um, Stephen and I did uh, a Gertrude Stein piece Without Lynn, the lyrics were all Gertrude Stein's. So, I mean, they're, and they did Rocky. Uh, they, they, Anastasia is opening in Spain. Uh, Rocky started in Germany. 
Their shows are very popular in Europe. Uh, you know, they're they're in the Theater Hall of Fame. I mean, they're they're a remarkable creative team and very busy. So they were busy all through the summer, and then uh, last August, as the agents. I mean, one of the things we were tiptoeing around was, are we? Can we get, get the, the rights? rights? And because there are two works involved, the original novel, which won the Pulitzer Prize mm -hmm. when it was published in '57, then in 1960, a wonderful writer named Tad Moselle did a stage adaptation which starred Colleen Dewhurst. Uh, subsequently, it was made into a film with Robert Preston and um, Gene Simmons. There's also a television, like kind of like Playhouse 90, way back in the 60s, of uh, the play with Sally Field. So it has attracted uh, interpretive artists, uh, you know, especially in the decade after it was published, but then got kind of forgotten. So the Tad Moselle play is called uh, All the Way Home. So you've got a death in the family, All the Way Home, and Knoxville, three different works. Knoxville, the musical, based on the two earlier works. So, so, so you would need to get the rights from the publishers of the book, but you would also need rights from Tad Moselle or yes, whoever owns them? Yes, that's correct. That's oh, correct. wow. Yes. What was fortuitous for us was that uh, the agency or the publisher... Uh, I know it was the agent, was the same for both. Oh, that's helpful. Very helpful. Although I can't imagine they wouldn't want you to have them. I mean... Well, I, yeah, maybe. I mean, we were really uncertain. Well, nobody else is beating down no, the no, door, right? That's, <laughs> that's true. There's, and you guys have all these credits. I mean, I can't imagine... Well, may, maybe so. Uh, they, they, It took a while. Uh, they, they had to deliberate, they had to negotiate things like credits, like percentages, and I have no idea. But anyway, uh, we did get the rights so to both uh, texts. So this is um, a kind of chamber musical, 12 in the cast, mm -hmm. six in the band. Wow. Many in the ensemble play instruments as well. It's very simple. It's uh, an open space, some chairs, fiddles and banjos and basses and percussion and an old piano. Is this a little bit like um, our town? Well, uh, it's, I can see you connecting them. Uh, it does have some 
resonance with our the town. The same kind of open sense. That's right. Very openly theatrical. Right. Very honest and simple. You and could American. tell from the first <laughs> sentence. Yes. You know, we're talking now about Knoxville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. You know, right, it's right, like right. the name of this play is Our Town. That's right. You know, <laughs> right, it's just right, right, right. absolutely candid mm-hmm. and honest. And it's also, as you say, I mean, an American narrative about family. And, uh, and tragedy. Our, our town ends very tragically mm-hmm. with the death of Emily. But <laughs> it's really quite interesting. Knoxville has the same degree of wonder at the mystery of our own spiritual life, our own spiritual journey. Um, and, and so there's redemption mm-hmm. and forgiveness and peace, ultimately. And that happens in our town and in yeah. Knoxville. Yeah. So I... Th- I I love it. I know, I know. I can't <laughs> yeah. wait. So just it's gonna it's gonna have its uh, premiere here yes. in the spring of two thousand twenty. Twenty. Yes. I have one more question. You have given your life. I want to say to the theater, but it's it's larger than the theater. You have given your life to to thought, to philosophy, to literature, to ideas. Mm-hmm, you know? Would you think that's wrong? No, I, it's moving to hear you say that. I, yeah. I think I, it's very... It's, it's not so much a question of giving my life to those things as me being given life Through by them. those Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so the question is, is there anything you would say about that, about what you think about it or feel about it? We took 1776... Mm-hmm out to the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. Mm. And we ran out there for a couple of months. It was a great experience. Carrie Perloff, the artistic director, came and saw the show here. It was mind-boggling. I couldn't see it enough. I just It changed my life. It did. Oh, really? Yeah. I loved it. I loved every second of working on it. But anyway, she, uh, Carrie, when I was out there, um, asked me to speak to a group of advanced graduate students in theater and directing and acting. And uh, you know, I was chatting with the students, and then someone said, uh, "So, what advice do you have for us?" Something like that. And honestly, I, the only thing I could think of saying was read. <laughs> read and read and read and keep on reading and reread. Read again. Uh, human language is one of the most mysterious and 
awesome aspects of human life, language. Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, we actually are able to talk to one another, to say what we think, to posit, to propose. In fact, all you have to do is say, I do, mm -hmm. and you're married. <laughs> I mean, it's the words, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know. We hold these truths to be self-evident, yeah. that all men and women are created equal. Yeah. Now, uh, that, that's the holy grail. That is the vessel of truth. And... One must constantly pursue it, the truth. And language is a key. It has become so debased, yes. so befouled, so besmirched, brutalized, abandoned, tortured, twisted, uh, you know, you can't really appreciate the wonderful manipulations of, let's say, Lewis Carroll in Alice in Wonderland if you don't know something about logic. Something yeah, then about... Then it doesn't make sense. No. Yeah, you have you. So uh, you know, if the public is is fed like a goose being stuffed for pate, if the public is fed um, lies and and distortions and evasions and ugliness and cruelty and yes. ugliness yes. and brutality yes. fed this uh, the this the spitting tone the acid tongue the quick quip yes the nickname yes the uh, the racial epithet as we used to say in the 60s. I mean, th these, these are horrors that go by unnoticed. Well, they, but I think you're saying, but they change behavior. They do. Right, so that we may not, well. I, I yes, <laughs> I, you know, no, you're, I, I hear what you're saying. That in that sense, they're not at all unnoticed. No. But and actually, they, maybe what we're noticing is the effect. And not them when they're going by, but then we see what they did. Yeah, and I, and I feel like, uh, well, um, when, uh, when we did, uh, we, we took Ragtime on its first 
uh, leg of the national tour, the first tour, and we started in Washington, D.C. And we were at the National Theater there. And we were told, after we were rehearsing and getting ready to open, um, that the uh, president was coming. The vice president, and it was Clinton, and, and Mrs. Clinton, and Gore, and Mrs. Gore, and the whole house was filled with Democrats. <laughs> we had been celebrated and got wonderful reviews, and we had opened on Broadway, and you know, everything was marvelous and all. But oddly enough, the press, uh, the critics, never really talked much about what the play was about. Uh, they admired the, you know, production and the costumes and the acting and the music and all of that. Yeah. And wow, it's the story of America, you know. But the conflict, the, the, yes. what is at the core of that story, which Doctorow himself deeply knew yeah. and understood, the critics just seemed to kind of pass over. Well, that performance, it was a matinee when the president was in attendance. After it was over, he came up on stage this was not unexpected. He picked up the little coal house and held him in his arms and said hello to all of the cast members while the audience is still sitting there. And then he turned out and he spoke extemporaneously yeah. without a note. Oh, my <laughs> God. And he went right to the heart. He said, we must renew in ourselves every day the struggle against racism and bigotry. Yeah. We, he said, we cannot retreat into our own enclaves of ethnicity. He said that was off the top of his head, and I never forgot it. No, no, and of course, when he, when he left office, he got his office in Harlem. Yes, yes. He moved yes. right out of his ethnicity, yes, right? that's right, that's right. Um, so I asked you how you felt about this, and I think you're saying, so I'm going to put words in your mouth, okay. right? And then you're going to tell me if I'm right. I think you're saying that you have been privileged to work, to, to, to work, um, I can't find the word, I can't find the fucking word. <laughs> to honor language in your life. Is that accurate? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, you, as I read somewhere once, somebody said, you are as many people as the languages you speak. <laughs> and I wish I could have been many, many more people. Um, I think that you have been many people, and we are grateful for everyone. <laughs> Thank you so much, Frank Galati. Thank you. So, when you listen to Frank Galati, it is my hope that you are asking yourself, is this how I feel about my life?
do I have this intensity, this passion, this urgency about the work that I do? Am I living the life that I can say fits me, becomes me, is me? Well, of course, I hope that you are. But if you're not, the Lynn Show is about saying it is not too late to recover some of what you may have had to leave behind. And as always, I hope you got something you can use from this show. Something that you didn't know that you know now. Something that amused you or interested you or intrigued you. Something that inspired you. Something that will help you to continue to become the person you really are. You see, I'm getting older. My hair is turning gray. Oh, you say my face and figure. I've both seen better days Well, I won't be retiring I won't slip out of sight No, I will not go gentle Into that good night Some goddamn boomerang No, I won't go with a whimper I am going with a bang You see that I have had my shot My time has come and gone Oh, won't I please get off the stage Let someone else get on I won't be relegated or leave without a fight, no. I will not go gentle into that good night. got some tang so you won't hear me simple I may have gotten 